Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Welcome back, everybody, to America Adapts, the climate change podcast. I am your host, Doug Parsons. On today's very special episode, we have Dr. Michael Mann. This is a good one. Don't forget, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Just go to iTunes. It's that purple eye on your iTunes app and look for America Adapts. Or you can find the podcast at my website at americadapts.org. Thanks and stick around. Hi, everybody. Welcome again. If you're new to the podcast, I'm Doug Parsons, the host of America Adapts, the climate change podcast. I hope you enjoy this episode. Like I said, it's going to be an exciting episode. I've got Dr. Michael Mann from Penn State University, author of the famous hockey stick paper that this thing has been part of the climate change dialogue for 20 years. And I talked to Dr. Mann about the hockey stick, among other things, and his new book, The Madhouse Effect. It's a fantastic conversation. Please stick around. Again, for those who are new to the podcast, please consider subscribing to it. You can find it if you go on iTunes. It's that little purple eye on your uh, smartphone. Just hit that app and look for America Daps and subscribe. You'd get this every week. I published weekly. And also, you can find the podcast at my website at americaadapts.org. Also, if you have questions about the podcast, questions about my interview with Michael Mann, you can be, reach me at americadaps at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you have ideas for guests, please let me know. I have a great lineup coming up. I have someone from World Wildlife Fun. I'm going to be talking about a conference that I just went to recently. Also, before we get started with Dr. Mann, I just want to acknowledge a couple people. This episode would not have happened without them. First of all, I'd like to acknowledge Randy Olson, famous filmmaker, scientist, turned filmmaker. I know Randy. He's a friend, and he has been incredibly helpful. Introduced me to Dr. Mann and could not have had this episode if it wasn't for him. And he's, he's written books, and his one that most of you have probably heard about is Don't Be Such a Scientist. He's done some really innovative work on using stories to communicate science more effectively. And Randy, thanks Thanks for your support and thanks for your help. And also actually like to thank a friend of mine, Richard Heights, who's a musician and audio engineer. And Rick helped me produce some of the audio. It's not always easy doing some audio on the podcast. And thanks, Rick. Appreciate it. And without, I guess, any further delay for those wanting to hear from Dr. Mann, it really is an amazing episode with him. There's some great stories that he tells. And so we're going to jump right into it. So thanks again. All right. Here's Dr. Mann. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to America Daps, the climate change podcast. Today, I have a very special guest, one that for many of you won't need an introduction. It's Professor Michael Mann. Mike is a distinguished professor of atmospheric science at Penn State University, the scientist behind the now legendary hockey stick paper and author of several books and one that we're going to talk about today, The Madhouse Effect, which he co-authored with Tom Tolles. And if I might say so, and if you excuse me, Mike, that you're just an all-around climate change badass, welcome to the podcast. <laughs> Thanks, Doug. It's great to be with you. Now, this is a big thrill for me, and we have a common acquaintance in Randy Olson, the filmmaker. He, uh, After the election, he said, Doug, you need to get Michael Mann onto the podcast. <laughs> and as you can imagine, it wasn't very hard for me to say uh, to yes to that. So, again, thanks for coming on. Sure. Randy's a great guy. He's um, one of the uh, real gurus uh, when it comes to communicating science to the public. And uh, I've learned quite a bit from him. Uh, he's one of my mentors. So it's great that uh, he was the one who brought us together. Yeah, and I don't think Randy's afraid to just sort of tell you what's going on in uh, that's right. It's uh, it's it's won him uh, many friends and, and and many detractors as well because uh, uh, you know Randy sometimes is all about the tough love, tell, telling the scientific community, you know, for example, that it's not doing uh, a good enough job in communicating its message, and to some extent, um, that is why we are still stuck in this um, 
you know, this fake debate uh, about uh, whether you know climate change exists. Well, that you know, I, that's what I sort of want to talk to you about. There's a lot of topics I want to cover. I, looking at your history, it's it, it's almost too much to kind of like figure out what we need to talk about. But I sort of want to mention we actually met before, and you're not going to remember who I was, but this was an event about two years ago that the Compass Online was hosting a cocktail hour at the top of this building in D.C. Oh yeah. Was this this was National Press Club, uh, perhaps? No. You were with no. Gavin Schmidt, and it they were only serving Paps Blue Ribbon. I don't. Oh yes, I, absolutely yes. I, I remember it quite well. It was a, a bar, I think, in the right, upper right, right, or it had been turned into one. Yeah, so you <laughs> yeah. were there with Gavin Schmidt, and I'm sitting there going, "Oh my goodness, here are two legends in the field. I got to go over and talk to you guys." And so I went over for like 15 minutes, and we chatted, and I asked you all sorts of questions. And I'm sure you probably couldn't pick me up from a lineup, but it was it was a thrill to talk to you then. Well, actually, when I saw your uh, avatar here uh, as we entered into the Skype conversation, uh, I did oh. recognize you, and so clearly, you know, it it, it, it is from that. Uh, that meeting that we had a few years ago. We yeah. Can't forget the cheap beer. So <laughs> when Randy set us up to talk, something really big happened in the meantime. And, and I think you know what I'm talking about. And so, uh, yeah, something called a U.S. presidential election. And I'm just, you were quoted soon after the election and I, there were some great quotes. And in the, after that, your quote, and the one I'm talking about is where you said, and I think you were quoting James Hansen about it might be game over for the climate. And since what you've seen so far, would you modify that quote at all? Yeah, and um, some of the nuance and context was lost, as it often is, you know, when you, uh, uh, you know, when 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 you talk about an event that is as um, you know, as profound as Trump's you know, victory in the presidential election, there is a lot of hyperbole out there. There is a tendency for people <laughs> to get quoted out of context in sort of just the, uh, just the, the in, in the uh, huge sort of dissonant eruption following that election. And what I said, um, and I tried to, to be clear that what I was saying was that if we were to pursue Trump's stated policies, you know, if he were to move forward with the agenda that he has threatened to pursue when it comes to clean energy, when it comes to climate change, then indeed it could be game over for stabilizing warming below dangerous levels. So, and I, I remain convinced that that's the case. Uh, on the other hand, I think it's still possible to hold out some hope, um, to have some you know, cautious optimism that maybe he won't pursue some of the more extreme measures that he has threatened to, uh, for example, pulling out of the uh, Paris Accord, this international agreement uh, last year um, by, you know, the leading nations from around the world, nearly 200 nations from around the world to uh, limit carbon emissions in a manner that will help prevent us from reaching those dangerous levels of, of warming. It remains to be seen if, if he will um, indeed uh, decide to unilaterally pull out of that, that treaty. And in a piece that I wrote for Scientific American a few days after the election with uh, Susan Joy Hassel, um, we basically made the point that if Trump wants to be true to his campaign promise, he's emphasized the importance of bringing manufacturing back uh, to the U.S. and making this country great. Well, the only way we're going to do that in 
the 21st century is by being part of the great economic revolution that is underway, uh, which is, of course, the, the clean energy revolution. And so if we are to move into the 21st century to grow our economy, to bring manufacturing back uh, to the U.S., then we need to embrace um, this this revolution, um, the, the rapid transition towards renewable energy. And, you know, rather than allowing China to lead the world in the production of solar panels to the point where they flooded the entire global market, which is arguably a good thing, and they brought down the the price of solar panels, and that's part of why we're seeing uh, such a rapid increase in the adoption of renewable energy, uh, solar energy, along with wind and other sources. Do we want to continue to have to buy our, our solar panels from China, or do we want to try to lead this effort by producing solar panels and by you know, seizing upon clean energy, incentivizing wind and solar and electric vehicles and uh, helping our great entrepreneurs like uh, Elon Musk in establishing the U.S. as a leader in this area. I I think he has a choice, and I hope that he will make the right choice. I mean, you make a good point. He seems like such a wild card that if you catch him on a good day, you might be able to make some progress. And so I think a lot of us are hoping that's actually the case. Right. We're reading the tea leaves because that's about all you can do at this point. Well, Mike, I want to come back to... Donald Trump, but I would sort of like to maybe step back and talk a little bit about science and talk about this book that you've just published in the last couple of months. Yeah. So the Madhouse Effect, and it's 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 a great book. I finished it just relatively recently, but I could have put it down as a really good book. Congratulations on the book. Thanks. You collaborated with Tom Tolles, who's the uh, cartoonist for the Washington Post, and I'm just curious, what's the history right. there? How did you end up collaborating with Tom? Yeah, well, you know, Tom did a few cartoons uh, some years ago that involved me, either directly or indirectly. Uh, it had to do with the Virginia Attorney General, Ken Cuccinelli, mm-hmm. uh, otherwise known right. as the Cooch, a Tea Party Republican who was the incoming Attorney General, uh, tried to sue the University of Virginia to get a hold of all of my personal emails with uh, hundreds of scientists around the world in an effort to try to find something to discredit, you know, my science, the science of climate change, and, you know, fulfill his uh, agenda to do the bidding of the fossil fuel interests that fund his campaigns. Uh, Well, at the time, uh, this, you know, witch hunt, as the Washington Post called it, um, was derided by scientists, by politicians on both sides of the aisle to some extent. And Tom Tolles weighed into the matter by publishing uh, at least two cartoons ridiculing Ken Cuccinelli's, you know, uh, witch hunt against me in the University of Virginia. And so I, I knew of Tom's work, of course, even before that. But that sort of created a direct link between us. And uh, my publisher actually approached me uh, a little over a year ago and said, you know, would you, you know, why don't you guys join forces and use, you know, the brilliant cartoons that Tom has done over the years uh, to highlight the issue of climate change and to uh, highlight the hypocrisy of climate change denying politicians. And why don't you guys, you know, use those cartoons to, to, to make a book, to write a book and, it sounded like a great idea to me. Uh, Tom liked it as well. And so the rest is sort of history. And the interesting thing is, as we were writing the book, um, you know, the campaign was still unfolding. We didn't know who the, um, you know, the, even who the uh, nominees were going to be, let alone the victor, uh, months ago as we were uh, finalizing the book. And 
uh, this is sort of a funny story. We had the galleys, I think it was in July, the galleys came back and we're looking at them and we're realizing that there isn't a single cartoon about Donald Trump. <laughs> and of course, he's the, at this point, he's already become the gorilla in the room. I mean, it's, you know, and, uh, and, and his denial of climate change had become quite prominent. You know, his acu- you know, his claim that uh, it's a hoax created by the, Chinese um, sort of laughable statement, uh, we realized that, you know, w- we had to fix that. And so at the very last minute, we, we did um, include a Trump cartoon. Uh, I'll uh, leave it to the reader to discover <laughs> what the cartoon is and what it has to say. Uh, leave a little bit of suspense there. Um, although I'll say it does involve building a wall. Mm. And, and that's all I'll say. And we sort of no, we we fortified our discussion of of Donald, Donald Trump and his position on climate change because it was clear that that was going to be very important uh, going forward. We had no idea, in fact, just how relevant that would be. In a sense, the book is more relevant because of Donald Trump's victory than it would have been had Hillary Clinton won. Uh, because the book really is about the, the denial of climate change, the absurdity of the denial of climate change by, you know, fossil fuel funded politicians and the Koch brothers and all these other bad actors who have poisoned our public discourse. And that's what the book is about. Uh, the book sort of ends on a, uh, a somewhat ambivalent uh, note, sort of cautiously optimistic, but taking note of the, the critical, you know, uh, decision that that at that point lie, lied before us, you know, were we going to move forward, build on, you know, the successes of the current administration as we move forward, or were we, were we going to turn back and return to the fossilized age of, of our reliance on, on fossil fuels? Well, we, we sort of know what the answer to that is now. And in, in a way it makes the book much more relevant because unfortunately it means we haven't moved past the uh, denial of, uh, the problem presented by climate change, um, and that's highlighted, you know, it's underscored by the fact that we now have, for the first time in history, a president who denies that climate change even exists. Uh, well, I think it was appropriate. In today's Washington Post, I get it delivered to my house. Um, Tom Tolls had a Donald Trump climate change cartoon, so spot on <laughs> for today's podcast. Well, I was very happy. <laughs> Well, yeah, in fact, Tom and I did an event the other day. It was a book fair sponsored by uh, Politics and Prose Bookstore and the National Press Club. And we were we were taught it was the first time he and I had actually um, met up, seen each other face to face since the election. And we, we had quite a bit to talk about, obviously. So it's great that Tom, you know, continues uh, to, you know, do do the brilliant work that he does and. In highlighting this issue and, and other critical issues through satire and humor. And that's what I think made this book so different and, and, and I'd like to say fun. It's not a topic that's fun to talk about, you know, the potential demise right, of our right. planet, but, um, it, but it, it really was a joy to, to work with, you know, such a brilliant satirist in crafting this, you know, a, a narrative that approaches the issue in a different way and, and maybe will reach some people who have otherwise been impervious to what the science has to say because we do frame it 
in a different way in terms of humor and satire and yes, a fair amount of ridicule where it's well, due. I was surprised what a library of cartoons he had. So you go through the chapter and a lot of times you'd have a cartoon at the end of the chapter and it was just spot on. And so you'd read the chapter and you'd be making these points, but then you'd get to the cartoon and it like instantly <laughs> kind of summarized what you just spent 10 pages on. And so yeah. it was a nice bookend to yeah. it. Really clever. Yeah. Well, no, that, that was what was so enjoyable about it was be able to, to to work together with him to to do that to have the text reinforce the message in the cartoons and the cartoons reinforce the message in the text and uh, there's also almost a good cop bad cop thing going on here where you know the hardest hitting uh, commentary is actually in the cartoons um it's not in the text that I mostly wrote it's really in the cartoons that Tom crafted and there are a number of those cartoons actually were new and were exclusive to the book. So we drew upon a lot of the cartoons he had done, but there were a few gaps, as you might imagine, in trying to tell the full story. We were, you know, it, it, he, he's done, he has this incredible arsenal. He has this incredible portfolio of work that he's done over the years. Um, and there were just a few gaps here and there where we said, you know what, we need to do a new cartoon to make this point. And, and Tom was more than, than willing to do that. And that really, I, I think, rounded it yeah, out. I mean, I was surprised. I, I thought, you know, it was going to be new material or something, but he has such a great library that fit perfectly with the chapters. It's like, okay, he wrote this, whatever, five years ago. I mean, he was really ahead of it on, on a lot of his, his cartoons. Yeah, no, a lot of them are from, you know, previous work, and it's amazing how prescient uh, many of them are, you know, even those the cartoons from 10 years ago uh, or, or more. Uh, we had, you know, 15 years ago. It's sad how 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 relevant some of those cartoons still are today when it comes to, you know, the issue of denial of climate change. But, uh, but yeah, there are quite a few uh, new ones as well in the book. And, and I think that, you know, that, that, um, again, really rounded things out. Well, it got me thinking, I, I got a master's in ecology, so I had to read a lot of science papers, but you're a scientist and I'm just curious. I hated reading a lot of the science papers, but I wonder if you <laughs> could put below that abstract, have a cartoonist collaborate with the scientist to try to summarize whatever was said in that science paper in a cartoon. Do you think that's possible? <laughs> I love that. I love that idea. Uh, I hadn't thought of it before. Uh, I, I my my, uh, my idea uh, along these lines is that we should have commercial sponsors. You know, when you watch a sports event and it seems like every statistic that they show you has a corporate sponsor associated yes. with it. Um, here's the Michelin, you know, um, uh, top 10 receivers of the game or what have you. So, you know, why don't we do the same thing in scientific papers? Uh, um, you know, here, uh, please see Exxon Mobil table number one oh, where we live, yeah, you know, <laughs> but but seriously, I, I love the idea. Um, I think, you know, obviously I spend a lot of time thinking and talking about climate change, but I'm also very interested in the broader issue of, uh, I think, as we both are, obviously, of science communication and doing the best job that we can do. And that's what, you know, our friend Randy Olson is all about, uh, finding innovative ways for scientists to, to be more effective communicators and in Randy's case, um, again, um, it's very much about uh, humor and sort of, you know, trying to get past the very stiff, serious wall <laughs> that we, the scientific community often presents to the public. Um, and, you know, Randy uh, thinks that improv, teaching scientists improv is, is a really helpful way of, of, of getting them to be more effective communicators. But this is sort of along those lines, introducing humor 
um, uh, a cartoon that summarizes the paper. It's going to be easier in some cases than other cases, you know, uh, finding a cartoon um, to explain the latest uh, developments in uh, string theory, um, you know, might be a challenge, but, you know, it's a challenge worth uh worth embracing i think i think it's well, a great you idea have graduate students right so you should get them to work with like the fine arts department and they have to communicate to those art students on what they just said in this paper and then they get the cartoon and everyone sort of benefit make it just a requirement of your graduate students yeah no i think i, I think that that's exactly the sort of um outside the box thinking that we have to be engaging in i, I think that we, it was that science online yeah, that's that, it, that's uh, it, yeah. so there was at the time there was a uh, they actually had a sketch artist right, right. who was who was I forget what the term is for like these real time cartoons and sketches that summarize the nature of the um, proceedings of the conference. But I thought that was brilliant, and and that's sort of uh, along those lines. Uh, we need we need a lot Parent more of that. Ireland. I was actually looking her up to be on this podcast. Yes, yeah, yeah. yes, yes. Yeah, exactly. Yes, she was brilliant. She, she was she was brilliant. And again, it was bringing the science together with sort of uh, artistic um, means of expression. And it was it was great. I think the scientists learned a lot from that. And yeah, you know, I think we're, we're, we're preaching to the choir. Obviously, we're on the same page here. So, but yeah, I, I think that this we need to do a lot more of this sort of stuff. Um, because, you know, and this is a point that Randy uh, often makes, you know, the, the forces of anti-science are very mobilized and they've become very effective at messaging and they're very skilled at rhetoric and there's they're trained to be effective communicators and in many cases they're they're cleaning our clock so you know communicating science to the public is already tough enough because science seems so inaccessible it seems so technical scientists seem uh, cold and aloof um uh, to many uh, in the public and so it starts out being an uphill challenge then you add on top of that this sort of uh, headwind that we're fighting, as I've often called it, of an, an organized disinformation effort makes it all that much more tough and it makes it all that much more important for us to learn effective tools for communication. Well, I want to come back to that, and there's this whole issue of like fake news beca- becoming an issue in the election, but I want to come yeah. back to that. I do want to kind of go back in history, and let's, let's go back to 1998, because you, you know you bring up a lot of things that you've been involved in with in the, yeah. in the book, and so the hockey stick. And so I'm from Florida, and when someone says hockey stick, I don't think hockey. I just I was in Florida. I think Michael Mann, climate change, and so that's so iconic. <laughs> I think you're gonna say street hockey, no, but I don't okay. even think that. Uh, we don't do that. I, someone says hockey stick, I'm like, oh, okay, climate change. And so I'm I'm trying to visualize 1998, and you published this paper, and I think it'd just be interesting to listeners on just sort of like what was like the political environment on, on the ground, and even like the science. Like you know, it wasn't like universally accepted climate change. I mean, most people thought that that was the case, but it's not like it is now. And I'm just if, if you could maybe explain like when you published that, did you have any sort of sense of what you were kind of releasing it into? Yeah, sure. And there's a little bit of the of discussion of, of my sort of experiences um, and, the, and the hockey stick in, in the new book, in the Madhouse Effect, just because it, it provides an example of sort of the, uh, you know, the, the, the attacks on our science. But it's pretty brief. And in fact, I wrote a whole book about my experiences in the center of the climate change debate. Uh, a few years earlier, uh, called The Hockey Stick and the Climate Wars. And in, in that book, 
I, I talk about precisely, you know, what, what you're asking, what it was like. You know, I was this science nerd. I was a physicist uh, looking for other areas of science where I could apply the math and the physics that, um, you know, that I had studied. Uh, I was, you know, I had a master's in physics, all but dissertation in physics. I was about to go on to do a PhD in theoretical physics in the, uh, you know, in, in the early 1990s. And then I decided my heart wasn't quite in it. You know, I just wasn't as engaged with the sort of problems that were being presented to me in that field as, as I needed to be. And so I started looking around on campus and I saw that there was a professor in the Department of Geology and Geophysics, Barry Saltzman, who was using physics and math to model the global climate system. And that sounded like a fascinating mm -hmm. problem to me. I went to talk with him. We hit it off. The rest is history, so to speak. I ended up doing my PhD in that department um, on uh, with Barry Saltzman on climate modeling and climate science. And uh, my interests at the time were re really very much um, in understanding natural climate variability. So, again, this is the early 1990s. Climate change was already, you know, obviously a, um, a pretty prominent issue in our public discourse. Uh, but my interest was largely in understanding natural climate variability, which, of course, is relevant. Uh, we need to understand the context of natural climate variability to assess, you know, how unusual the human impact on climate uh, really is. But the irony is that I set out not really to study human-caused climate change, but to study natural climate cycles. And it was in my interest in understanding long-term natural climate cycles that I got interested in what are known as proxy data. These are um, these aren't direct instrumental measurements of climate because those only go back a, a century to a century and a half, and we, we don't have an historical observational temperature record that goes back further than, you know, 150 years, at least at the global scale. And that means that while the Earth has warmed substantially over the last century and a half, from the instrumental record alone, we can't assess, you know, how unusual that might be. We used these um, proxy records to try to extend the record back in time, uh, again, to really see if we could find evidence for long-term natural cycles but in our studies of these proxy records, like tree rings and corals and ice cores, um, this, this is what we mean by climate proxy records that go back many centuries. Some of them go back millennia or even further. We pieced together this puzzle. We built this picture of how the climate had varied in the past. It is only when we did that that we realized that, in fact, our, our, our work did have profound implications for human-caused climate change, because what it showed when we plotted out the average temperatures that we reconstructed from these data, we saw that, in fact, the recent warming um, had no precedent. Uh, as far back as we were able to go in our first publication in Nature, in the journal Nature in 1998, we went back 600 years. A year later, in the journal Geophysical Research Letters, we extended the record further back in time, back a 1,000 years, um, and that's the 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 record that's been come to be known as sort of the, the classic hockey stick curve that shows the temperature was reconstructed over the past thousand years, along with the recent instrumental record, which reaches levels of warmth that are not evident in our reconstruction. And so when you step back and you look at the curve, you see that there was a sort of small 
a long-term cooling trend from a thousand years ago into the depths of the Little Ice Age of the 1700s, 1800s, early 1900s, followed by this rapid warming of the past uh, century. If you will, the pattern looks like a hockey stick with the blade, the upturned blade being the modern warming. And the modern warming uh, takes us outside of the range of anything we've seen over the past thousand years. Um, it quickly, you know, with our 1998 nature article, it, uh, it, the, the hockey stick first uh, started to achieve quite a bit of prominence, then the follow-up article extending it back a thousand years. Then finally in 2001, in the third assessment report of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, the hockey stick was front and center, and it was now sort of one of the central icons in the climate change debate. That set yeah. me up as a central figure in the climate change debate, and me and the hockey stick as a central object of attack by so the critics. So the hockey stick, I, I don't think people appreciate how boring some of the science can be. All that data that you get and you put together, but I'm just curious, was there sort of like a moment, because you look at the hockey stick graph, and that represents a lot of field work and just a lot of, you know, effort behind the scenes, but was there a yeah. moment where you kind of looked at the data and you're like, holy shit. Yeah, I, I think so. I think when we, you know, the, the, um, the a lot of the hard work, I, I, I can't take credit for. The fact that there are all of these important proxy climate records from ice cores and corals and, and tree rings all around the world, that's due to the hard work of literally hundreds and hundreds of paleoclimate scientists over the years who have built up this amazing archive. And in a sense, my job was was easy. Um, it was just to find a way to assimilate all that information coherently into a reconstruction of the large-scale patterns of climate change in the past. We were really focused uh, initially on the actual spatial patterns, uh, the global patterns of temperature. Where was it warm? Where was it cold in, in any particular year? You know, that, that, that gave us insight, for example, into the sort of the changes in El Nino in the past, um, the response of uh, the global climate system to some of the large volcanic eruptions uh, that occurred prior to the historical era, um, like the, uh, the uh, Tambora eruption in 1815. So, again, a lot of our interest uh, was in these natural patterns, and, and it was an understanding of natural climate variability that really drove this research in the beginning, but when we averaged over these patterns, these spatial patterns, to get a single number, the average temperature of the northern hemisphere, and we plotted it out, and then we plotted it against the instrumental record, you know, it was clear, you know, as soon as we, we, we plotted it out, that this had some profound implications um, for climate change. As you mentioned, the article came out in 1998, the first article, the Nature article, and at the time, we were witnessing the warmest year on record. Uh, right, 1998 right. was the warmest year on record. It was boosted by a, a big El Nino event. So, you know, climate change uh, combined with uh, sort of a, a natural episodic uh, fluctuation that built on the already present global warming to give us this new record, this new um, unprecedented peak temperature. And there was a lot of discussion uh, about the fact that, you know, here we were seeing the warmest year on record by a substantial amount. 
there was that year I remember because uh, I was uh, working at uh, I was at the University of Massachusetts on a DOE fellowship. And uh, that winter, there, there was barely, I'd grown up in, in Western Massachusetts, and that winter, there was barely any winter in Western Massachusetts. It was spring-like for, for much of the winter. It was, uh, you know, again, unlike anything we had seen. And so that was sort of the context. And then comes out this article, our article in Nature, that suggests that this anomalous warmth that we're seeing isn't just anomalous in the context of the relatively short historical record, uh, it's anomalous in the context of you know, the last 600 years at least. And I think it was one of those cases, it was sort of a, forgive the, the, the pun, a perfect storm, you know, the prominence that climate change was getting, uh, the, the, the second assessment report of the IPCC had come out in 1995 for the first time saying that there is now a discernible human influence on the planet, uh, on the climate. And so the scientific community had now, you know, said, had concluded that, yes, we can now see the impact of humans on the climate. We get this unprecedented warm year, and then our article comes out sort of in that environment. Uh, it ended up, and it came out not by hard choosing, but uh, it came out on Earth Day, April nice. 22nd, uh, 1998. And so I think that all sort of came together in a way that, brought much greater prominence to this work than, uh, you know, I think we otherwise would have um, you well, know, experienced. You know, we're only two years away from the 20-year anniversary of the hockey stick, and I, I bet there's lots of groups I would love to work with you to somehow, you know, promote that. I don't know if that's already in the works, but it would be more important than ever now. Interesting. I hadn't really thought about that, actually, but uh, I'll, I'll need to. And if you're any of your uh, listeners there uh, interested in uh, – in pursuing that uh, contact. Oh, well, yeah. I think your, your network's quite strong, too. You know, I saw Leah DiCaprio was on the back of your book, so maybe you could drop Leo a note about an anniversary party or something. But no, I, I'm, I'm totally <laughs> serious. So you know the hockey stick is an iconic thing in climate change, and so it'd be good to use that in two years into a Trump administration. But on that note, I, you know, I could talk to you for hours, but I wanted to make sure I cover a couple things here. And so I want to pivot yeah. a few years ahead, and I, I want to talk about ClimateGate, and then I want to leave some time to talk about Trump and what we need to do next. And so if you could just, I guess, Quickly summarize, what was ClimateGate about? Because I think it's probably going to be very useful about what's going to happen next. Yeah, well, you know, it, it, there, it, in my view, um, it was sort of a rear guard, sort of battle of the bulge, full frontal assault on the science of climate change in, in the wake of you know, the um, sort of the widespread improvement in the public discourse over climate change, uh, this uh, improvement in the public understanding of climate change that we saw in 2005, 2006, um, in the wake of, you know, an inconvenient truth, Al Gore's movie that sort of brought the scientific evidence to a very large cross-section of our, uh, of the public. The IPCC, along with Al Gore, was uh, awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for their work. And if you followed the media uh, discourse, sort of the, the way the, the mainstream media was treating the topic, it appeared to many that we had moved past the sort of bad faith denial of climate change onto the more legitimate uh, question of what to do about it. And so there are a lot of people who thought that, you know, in 2006, 2007, hey, that's 
that's, you know, what it's going to be about now. And, you know, the, the debate over the science is over. Um, I didn't believe that. While a lot of my colleagues were saying that and, and were convinced that we, they should be talking about solutions, and uh, I was not at all convinced. And I wasn't convinced in part because of what I had been through. Um, at that point, for you know, nearly a decade, I had been under attack by in- fossil fuel industry uh, funded groups and, and, and climate change deniers uh, looking to discredit the hockey stick. You know, I, I knew just because of the battles that I had been involved in for more than a decade with climate change deniers looking to discredit the hockey stick as a cynical uh, means of trying to claim to have discredited the entire case for concern about climate change as if it all depended on one publication, you know, the, in 1998. So, Having been familiar with sort of the modus operandi of the climate change uh, denial machine, I knew that they weren't going to give up. They weren't going to just say, oh, well, yeah, it looks like the debate's over, so uh, we'll just, you know, engage in that worthy discussion with you all about what to do about the problem. That's not the way these folks operate. They, you know, they'll go down <laughs> with the ship, and and that's soon enough we, in fact, saw that. And it caught many of my colleagues off guard. It didn't catch me off guard. I knew it was coming, that we were going to see a ramp up in industry funded, you know, Koch brothers and Exxon Mobil funded disinformation efforts uh, in the form of massive publications of editorials and letters to editors and talking heads on television, you know, on the news programs, talk radio. Uh, this huge echo chamber of climate change denial, all traceable <laughs> to a small number of vested interests, fossil fuel interests who fund all of this. Um, the Koch brothers, again, uh, privately held fossil fuel interest along with ExxonMobil and others. There was this, you know, last gasp of climate change uh, denialism where, you know, we saw a resurgence. Um, and, you know, in, in my book, The Hockey Stick and the Climate Wars, I, I talk a lot about this period and, and what was happening and what you saw and part of what, how it happened. Um, I think it was aided by a media culture that is always looking for something new, for a new narrative, right? And so the narrative that climate change is real, um, you know, there's a, a, a clear scientific consensus, we have to do something about it, that, that narrative became stale <laughs> eventually. They needed something new. Um, uh, journalists were looking for a new angle, and it was provided to them in the form of this massive, uh, pushback aided by a few cold winters mm-hmm. in North America, as if, you know, a few cold winters invalidate all of, you know, radiative physics and the entire science of, of climate change. Obviously, uh, it doesn't, but it aided, it provided a useful crutch for those looking to cast doubt on the reality of climate change and global warming. And we saw a huge resurgence led by Conservative talk radio, the Wall Street Journal, um, editorial pages, Fox News, uh, and and so on. There was this very massive, highly correlated, uh, highly um, uh, coherent, massively funded effort to sort of retrenchment uh, back into sort of hard 
core denialism of climate change. And uh, soon enough, in 2009, um, in you know, uh, in the lead up to the Copenhagen summit, which was sort of the next opportunity for, for meaningful inter- international progress in dealing with climate change, December 2009, in the lead up to that, uh, right about now, actually, just before Thanksgiving, there was this fake scandal um, where you know, thousands of emails had been stolen from a university server um, and they had been combed through and words and phrases and emails were taken out of content, uh, context and uh, appeared on television screens and in conservative uh, newspapers as evidence that climate change was a massive hoax, uh, that climate change, you know, that scientists were fudging the data. Um, all of these outlandish claims made, uh, you know, based on taking scientists' words completely out of context. Uh, an example is a trick. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a trick in science is a clever way of solving a problem. And so if you're very cynical and you know that, but you know that the public doesn't understand that, uh, you can say, look, these scientists were trying to play a trick on all of you. See, they used the word trick. It it was actually that vacuous. It was that intellectually dishonest uh, that that climate gate was really all about just trying to distract the public and the policymakers by taking scientists' stolen emails out of context um, and it was used to sort of hijack the Copenhagen summit. Um, in fact, the Saudi Arabian delegate and Saudi Arabia, by the way, uh, obviously has a horse in this race. Um, you know, they profit directly from our reliance on, on petroleum, on oil. Uh, and uh, they built, you know, their, their, their wealth is a, is a product of the continued uh, selling of, of oil to the world market. Um, they are the second largest uh, shareholder in News Corp, mm. which is um, the, the Murdoch's uh, News Corp uh, operation, which owns the Wall Street Journal, uh, Fox News, a lot of the tabloids in the UK and Australia. And so they had all of that at their disposal. Uh, I believe that Saudi Arabia is heavily implicated in this, although, you know, the, the perpetrators were never caught. Well, um, yeah, well, just to finish the, the thought. Yeah. And um, so the Saudi Arabian delegate, um, the first words out of his mouth at the Paris Accord, or, uh, sorry, the Paris Accord, the, the Copenhagen summit in 2009, was that these stolen emails reveal that, you know, climate change is a hoax and um, therefore there's no reason to do anything about it. And so it was obviously a political ploy to prevent progress from being made. And uh, it took years for the various investigations to play out, which all showed that there was no impropriety on the part of the scientists. Uh, The only impropriety here was the criminal theft of the emails and the intentional misrepresentation of them by bad faith actors. Well, that, you know, as someone just following that, it was so frustrating, even with you guys being exonerated, the fact that any intellectual energy was expended checking on yeah. you guys because, you know, the media moved on and, you know, there was serious effort to make sure that you guys weren't doing anything wrong. And it's just that's so unfair. And the other side does not have to apply to that standard ever. Well, that, that's the that's really the um, the asymmetry here, isn't it? Uh, we as scientists uh, have rules that govern the way that, you know, that we have to be truthful. Um, uh, you know, and in fact, it's a colleague, a deceased colleague of mine, uh, a good friend who's no longer with us, uh, Steve Schneider, who's one of the great uh, sort of communicators in our field, you know, described it as an ethical double bind. And the ethical double bind is that we have to be truthful. We have to discuss the caveats, the uncertainties of 
while being as effective as we can possibly be in communicating the science. We have to do both of those things. The other side has no such constraint or when it comes to ethics and truth-telling, and that makes it a somewhat asymmetric uh, battle where we, we have constraints that we operate under that the other side does not, and they use that to their advantage. Um, they have absolutely no commitment to being truthful, um, and that means that uh, there's uh, you know a lot of misinformation and disinformation that's out there uh, that we have to dispel, and it makes it all the more difficult to pivot to the positive message that we want to deliver to the public because we have to spend so much of our time and resources, as you allude to, uh, simply doing defense um, uh, and responding to the, the false allegations. Well, on that note, I want to pivot to like what's next, and I wanted to present a hypothetical to you, and I, and I hope you have a little fun with this, but I, and I'm actually serious about this. And so, again, we talked about Donald Trump being such a wild card, and so Donald Trump is in the Oval Office. He's watching old episodes of Bill Maher, and he sees you, and he's thinking, oh, it's the hockey stick guy. I like hockey. Bring him in and let him talk climate change to me. And so you go to the White House. You walk into the Oval Office. There's Donald Trump. Right next to him is Secretary of Interior, Sarah Palin, John Christie, head of NOAA. You've got Mark Morano, White House Communications. And it's a real horror <laughs> show. But I'm assuming you would do it. But what would you say to Donald Trump? How would you go into that sort of meeting and try to talk climate change with Donald Trump? Well, I'm, I'm honored to be nominated for that role. <laughs> Uh, let me say that uh, a good friend and colleague of mine who's more prominent than, than I am, um, uh, Bill Nye, uh, has tried to engage Donald Trump in precisely that manner. Um, and uh, in fact, he put out a short little video the other day. Um, uh, it's a direct message to Donald Trump that, you know, he Bill uh, now uh, lives most of the time in New York City, uh, not far from Trump Tower. Um, he'll come down to Trump Tower and, and he wants to talk to Donald Trump about the issue of climate change. And, you know, I, I think that it may be necessary um, for, you know, if we're going to reach somebody like uh, Trump, who has already expressed a questionable view about uh, the nature of the scientific evidence for climate change, who has surrounded himself with some of the worst actors <laughs> when it comes to climate change denialism. If we're going to reach him, it's going to have to be through fairly inventive and novel means. Um, and that may mean uh, people like uh, you know, Bill Nye engaging him directly. Uh, you know, Bill is, a, is, is just a, you know, a, ver a very much adored <laughs> you know, public figure. Uh, so many uh, kids grew up learning about science through Bill through Bill Nye, and um, he has this, just this, uh, almost an aura about him. And, and I think, you know, Donald Trump, you know, might be intrigued at the opportunity of getting to meet and talk with Bill Nye, the science guy. Um, so I, I think that that's a very useful effort. I'd be happy to be part of that. I've actually told Bill, hey, I'll be happy to come along because uh, I, I spend a lot of time talking about the science with Bill. Um, but, uh, you know, I think you're it off on I, the science I, guy. I'm saying stranger things could happen, but he invites you. And I'm just curious, would you try to yeah. communicate science with Donald Trump? Because would, would that even be effective? Well, let's say, 
yeah, a more realistic scenario where my friend Bill brings me along. Is can I bring my friend along okay. with me? My, my, <laughs> um, and you know, that's a scenario I can actually imagine uh, possibly happening. I would, I would probably, you know, I, I would talk a little bit. Uh, I wouldn't actually get into the the weeds um, with respect to the science. I would simply point out that, hey, look, you know. Uh, your predecessor, Abraham Lincoln, who's the first Republican president, created this body that we call the National Academy of Sciences in the 1800s. And he created it because there was a need to have an objective, unbiased body of leading uh, scientist, scientific experts um, to assess matters of policy-relevant science for the politicians for policymakers, um, and that's why the National Academy was established. And the National Academy has weighed in decisively on this issue. In fact, um, they did so uh, in response to uh, a former, again, Republican president, George W. Bush, um, who's, uh, who was surrounded with some critics like Dick Cheney, climate change deniers uh, in his administration, uh, who were skeptical uh, who were unwilling to accept the conclusions of the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, because it operates under the auspices of the United Nations and, and, and they don't trust the United Nations and, and so on. Um, so um, Bush therefore commissioned an independent report from the U.S. National Academy of Sciences to assess the science independently uh, of the IPCC. And they basically came back and said, you know, the IPCC basically has it all right. You know, what they said, <laughs> that's sort of what the, the National Academy concluded. Uh, and that, you know, that's where the science is. So there is no dispute um, within the scientific community about the reality of human-caused climate change. Where there's a worthy debate to be had is what we do about it. And let's have that debate. Let's have that discussion. That's a worthy discussion to have. Um, that would be the message that I would try to convey to him. Um, and, you know, who knows? Uh, he's enough of a, uh, you know, Trump is, is unpredictable enough that it's not outside uh, the realm of possibility that he could flip on this issue if there was a concerted, good-faith outreach effort by the scientific community, uh, I think there is an outside chance it could result in success. Yeah, I, you know, as a scientist, I'm sure that's so painful that the, to reference any science with Trump, you might just get into trouble. And I think it just comes down to ego that, you know, this is a opportunity for him to literally save the world. You just appeal to that ego and you just go light on the science because, you know, I, I would wonder, like, when you say National Academy of Science, would he just kind of roll his eyes, you know, how do you get into that? I mean, is he? Well, if I was going to talk about the science, that I wouldn't get into the details of the science. I would just make the point that, look, you know, Abraham Lincoln's scientific yeah. body has come back and said, uh, and there's there are some studies um, that suggest that uh, the knowledge of consensus, you're probably familiar with this. It, it's a gateway sort of belief. So, it, it, one of the main obstacles um, to, to convincing climate change deniers of the reality of climate change is the fact that they perceive that there is still a scientific mm -hmm. debate. And if you address that fallacy up front, 
it uh, turns out to be a very effective way at reaching critics. So, so the, 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 just the fact that objective bodies, as objective as anybody could be, um, not the IPCC, but, you know, the Republican formed National Academy of Sciences has, you know, has expressed this very strong consensus. Um, that's the only point I would make on the science. I wouldn't get into the greenhouse effect and the details of the science, but I would indeed emphasize precisely what you're uh, alluding to, which is, hey, you know, and this is what we said in, in our op in our commentary uh, at Scientific American, and I think it appears in the the next print issue of Scientific American, but it's already available online. Um, uh, the title is uh, "Climate Trumps Everything," and the point is that if if Trump wants to be successful in his stated agenda, and as you say, you know, you know, if, to the extent that um, you know that he 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 is driven, as uh, many argue, by sort of his sense of self-importance. Um, you know, the the fact that he could be a, a successful president um, by embracing. You know the, the 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 move towards renewable energy and um, you know and, and bringing manufacturing to this country um, in the area of wind turbines and solar panels and electric vehicles um, and you know that that might be one way to reach them and and that's what we did emphasize in our commentary um, not that I think Donald Trump reads Scientific American but you know maybe some of his uh, staff or handlers or people he listens to do. I think we have to try every avenue available to, to reach him because it's difficult to, to know precisely which of those will be successful. I know we just have a few more minutes here and um, it's been a fantastic conversation. And I just, I look at your career and all the lumps that you've taken and you keep coming back for more. And I bet you thought a few of those moments are like climate gate and, you know, work at the University of Virginia were sort of like low points. But I wonder, you know, I don't want to be a pessimist, but like if Trump does do what we think he might do, that all this work that you've done was just, it was a testing ground for what you're about to to have to deal with. And so, I mean, it, do you, what do you see in the next five, 10 years? And what, what, what sort of recommendations? I want certainly listeners to have positive in the sense that like, even if the policy is not going our way, what are some things that they can do? You know, reading your book is a good first start. Yeah. But I mean, what are the, civil disobedience? <laughs> what, what's the role of a scientist and an advocate? And, you know, just share those thoughts. Yeah, sure thing. <clears throat> I'll just, uh, as far as the, the, the latter question, you know, the role of the scientist as an advocate. Um, I, I wrote a, a piece in the uh, op-ed in the New York Times a couple of years ago uh, with the title, If You See Something, Say Something, which is taken, obviously, appropriated from the, the Homeland Security, the Department of Homeland Security's motto. But it applies to uh, us as scientists that, look, we're, we see a very uh, you know, near and present uh, danger um, in uh, human-caused climate change, and it is incumbent upon us um, you know, we receive government funding to study this stuff. Uh, we owe it to the public and to policymakers to communicate what we know about the risks. And uh, we play a very important role. And if you want to call that advocacy, so be it. Um, if so, then I think it's fully appropriate for a scientist to be a, an advocate, not necessarily for specific policies or specific candidates, but for an informed uh, policy discourse uh, for the notion that our Policy debate has to be predicated on 
a an objective assessment of the scientific evidence. And that's the basically the point that I made in that piece. And and, and that's what I view our role as scientists um, on the one hand is to, to inform the policy debate, not necessarily try to prescribe that um, a policy, uh, but but to, to inform that discussion, to make sure that it is informed by what the science has to say about the risks that we face. And, you know, so scientists can be active in so many different ways um, in informing the public, whether it's giving, you know, public lectures, writing commentaries in the local newspaper, speaking to groups, school groups, uh, church groups, civic uh, organizations. There's no end to the things that we can try to do to communicate uh, to the public. Um, obviously, we are citizens as well, and we can try to do all of the things that other citizens uh, need to do by, you know, you know vo- taking voluntary measures to decrease our own personal carbon footprints. We should all be doing that. Um, There's so many things that we can do in our lives that save us money, make us healthier, and they reduce our carbon emissions. So why wouldn't we do those things? And then we set a, an example for others to follow. So that's really important. But at the same time, voluntary measures alone won't cut it. If we're going to get carbon emissions, you know, under, uh, if we're to keep them below levels that pose truly dangerous and potentially irreversible um, uh, threat to uh, our climate, we are going to need policy at the highest level um, to put a price on the burning of carbon, to level the playing field so that renewable energy can compete fairly with uh, fossil fuel energy. Um, and, you know, uh, arguably uh, some of the, the, the most important progress in that area uh, came under the the efforts by the current uh, soon-to-be um, outgoing uh, administration, um, the Obama administration, through the Clean Power Plan, through the EPA fuel efficiency standards. Um, the executive branch under uh, under Obama did quite a few very critical things to try to meet our obligation to the rest of the world um, uh, in reducing our own carbon emissions. Uh, we, you know, have seen a tremendous growth in renewable energy um, across the country, even without a price on carbon. Uh, you do see individual states and municipalities, cities acting to um, introduce policy measures to uh, decrease carbon emissions. The West Coast states are in a uh, 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 in a consortium of, uh, of pricing carbon. The New England states uh, have a consortium to price carbon. So what we might see in the absence of leadership at the executive level or at the congressional level, given that uh, climate change denying Republicans are likely to continue to, to control uh, the two branches of Congress, progress will be left to the cities, the states, the individuals and don't underestimate how much progress can be made. Uh, just the states that are now already in carbon pricing consortiums, um, the West Coast states, the New England states account collectively for nearly a third of our population. So that's a pretty big chunk um, of our population uh, where, you know, that live in states where uh, there is going to be a price on carbon. Um, and so we may, you know, California is the eighth largest economy in the world, and they are leading the way on renewable energy, on pricing of carbon under Jerry Brown, Governor Jerry Brown's leadership. Um, so 
the rest of the world is moving ahead as well. Um, so I've come to believe that it isn't going to be a matter of, you know, whether we act on climate change is no longer up to the United States. What's up to the United States is do we want to be left out of the greatest revolution in policy and in our, uh, you know, our economy, the, the great revolution of the 21st century to move away from fossil fuel energy towards renewable energy. That's the direction the rest of the world is moving. We have to decide if we're going to be part of that or if we're going to be left behind um, and lose out because of it. Um, that's the decision at this point that uh, Donald Trump and the Republican Congress has to make. Uh, they do not get to decide if the world is going to move ahead. The world is moving ahead. We've seen that commitment in Marrakesh just this last week. Um, the world is going to move ahead. The U.S. has to decide whether it wants to embrace the, 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 that large-scale you know, effort or to be the skunk at the garden party and lose out because of it. Well, on that note, I think that was a very positive message that things are going to proceed. And, Mike, I know we have to wrap this up. This has been a fantastic conversation. I'm just thrilled to death that you came on the podcast. I think it's a you know, different type of audience, hopefully, that's going to listen to this message. But thank you so much for coming on, and just thank you for doing what you do. You're a hero of mine, and I had other people weigh in with me saying, oh, it's my hero. And so you just – so many people look up to you. I mean, I'm serious. <laughs> you probably never thought you were going to be this kind of heroic figure, but you are. And thank you so much for what you do. Well, thank you, Doug. That's it's obviously very kind of you to say that. And, um, you know, it, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Would love to come back on on the podcast oh, another time. To, to I would love up. for you to come back on and maybe we'll check back in and we'll kind of assess where things are. But no, you always have an open invitation. And um, on that note, folks, I hope you enjoyed this episode. This is America Daps, the climate change podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to America Daps. This is your host, Doug Parsons, and it's the return of the Adaptation in Wine Power Hour in this very special episode. Hey, Tim Watkins, you out there? I am. Hey, Doug. How you doing? Excellent. It's been a while. So it's been a couple weeks. It's that kind of season, you know? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so what's your poison over there? Uh, my poison is a 2015 Malbec, and uh, it comes from a vineyard called Elsa Bianchi. And um, that is a lovely, lovely name. Elsa Bianchi sounds like somebody I wish I had known in college. I'm feeling a, a bit nostalgic for Elsa Bianchi. We hardly knew you. She was quite the lady. Yeah. Um, <laughs> bit ironic, that title, you know, or that label for a red wine. But there you go. I didn't know you had it in you, Tim. Okay. <laughs> well, I'm just drinking a simple Chardonnay. It's a white wine kind of night for me. It's a cupcake, 2014, and it's it's a nice light thing for what I hope is a nice, interesting light conversation. So I understand cupcake is Elsa Bianchi's nickname <laughs> <laughs> that she doesn't like, but that's sure. right. <laughs> Only her mother uses it. Right, cupcake. Okay, Tim. So. I had a conversation with Dr. Michael Mann of the Hockey Stick fame, and I thought we'd chat a little bit about that. It was an amazing episode, and yeah, I, I, it was a, a real pleasure to have him on and just talk about all sorts of things, especially with what's happening around climate change in, in the news and such. Sure. 
Yeah, I bet. Uh, congratulations. He's such a big name. You know, he's a really, really famous guy and a uh, stellar scientist. I think it must have been really interesting to talk with a guy who is not only a world-class leading scientist in climate change, but is also pretty um, politically active, not so much as you know, being a on the street activist kind of person, but uh, really arguing the science and kind of getting into uh, some of the some of the political fights as as need be, and I think effectively. I, I hope that that came through in your interview, and that that was an interesting piece of it. It it was, and you know, doing my homework for the episode, I, I obviously dug around on on his history, and I felt like I knew a lot about Michael Mann. But the reality is, I mean, I just had scratched the surface. This guy has, I mean, if you look in the last twenty years, the amount of publications that the guys put out, but the things that he's been involved in, you know, being part of the IPCC. And then, you know, he got caught up in climate gate and we had a really interesting discussion about mm. the perils of being a scientist on such an issue. And it, it was fascinating to hear him kind of revisit that whole controversy. Yeah. Uh, I look forward to hearing the interview, but just very briefly, you know, did he say anything about it in ways uh, that might be interesting or useful or predictive about how to deal with those sorts of controversies in the next four years, let's say? Well, yeah, you know, we actually, that was part of the discussion is that he has this history of being attacked, you know, the hockey stick, and he has been at the center of it. And ClimateGate, you, as you read his bio, you think would be sort of like this low point, but I, I sort of made the point to him, I'm like, you know, your career actually up until now might have been just getting you ready for some really tough things. Mm -hmm. You know, he might have thought that climate gate was sort of this low point, but actually it might have just been a nice test run of things to come. So, yeah, we, we had that conversation. That's interesting. You know, people just in the past couple of days uh, have been talking about the post-truth or post-fact world that we live in because one of the um, one of the advisors to the Trump campaign said there's no such thing as facts anymore. Um, basically, everything is opinions and your take on things, which is a pretty startling thing to say coming from a spokesperson for the administration. And certainly, you know, that runs totally counter to the idea of science and scientists as being um, really qualified, thoughtful, uh, well-informed spokespeople and authorities for things like climate change. And uh, I am glad, very glad for people like Michael Mann who have cut their teeth in dealing with those sorts of battles. And uh, I think it, you know, people like him are going to be well prepared to counter what I think is probably going to be a huge uptick in assaults on, on truth and empiricism. Yeah, that the work that they do, I mean, and again, we touched a little bit upon that is like the scientific method and sort of the the standards. And, you know, we talked a lot about his book, the, the Madhouse Effect, that he wrote with Tom Tolles, who's the cartoonist for The Washington Post. And there's discussion of, you know, the standards that scientists have sort of set for themselves. And, you know, back to your point is that he's actually stuck his neck out on political issues, which a lot of scientists, they don't even want to bother with because they think it'll just compromise them. But, you know... He's done an amazing job sort of like surfing both of those worlds, you know, so it, it he's not he's fearless in that respect. And I think we're going to need more people like him. Yeah, I tend to agree. He's a bit of a hero for some folks within the climate change community and the science community. I suspect he also draws 
critics or I don't want to use the term skeptics, but uh, people, even scientists who are dismayed uh, about his political involvement. So did, did, did any of that come up? You know, did he sort of recognize and reflect on maybe some criticism he gets from fellow scientists for being so politically engaged? No, 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 that, you know, we had an hour and I, I probably got a th- through about a third of my questions, which was, <laughs> I, I could have talked to him for several hours on, on, on it, but no, we didn't get to that. And I think partly when we did talk about, you know, the Trump administration, it's just it, almost a kind of a universal, like if people don't like his tactics, meaning, you know, man's tactics, it, that's just good. That's almost going to disappear based on some of the threats that all the scientists are going to have to go through. So it it was just wasn't an issue, at least for the time being. Yeah, right. Interesting. Well, uh, maybe you can have him on again. I imagine there's a lot of rich ground there to talk about with him. No, for sure. He he he. We had such a great conversation. He's offered up to come on again without me prompting. And I was thrilled to death because I was going to make that offer. And so I'm like, you have an open invitation anytime you want. So maybe six months from now, after we've seen uh, Trump in the the office, that we'll, we could have another conversation of like, okay, what now? Where to? And I think uh, Michael Mann would be ready to have that conversation again. Well, if he enjoys a glass of wine and knows nothing about wine, I think you should invite him to the power hour. You know what? I think that would be a nice casual situation for for him. <laughs> he would enjoy that. Yeah. I don't know if he's a drinker. I'd hate to make any assumptions. But no, he is because I retold a story of when we first met and it involved alcohol. So you'll have to listen to to get the details of that. And if people are wondering like why he hasn't listened to this is recorded before I officially publish the thing. So that's, that's kind of how I do this podcast. But uh, okay. Well, that's, yeah, again, it was a fantastic opportunity. I was tickled pink. Thanks to Randy Olson for setting that up. I owe him all the credit in the world for that. Randy, if you're listening, thank you so much. And uh, anything else? Any final thoughts, Tim? Well, no, just... This glass of wine is going to help me get me through the uh, through the Trump administration. But, I, you know, I think there's a lot of stuff to talk about with adaptation, especially from the business investment uh, side of things. And it will be very interesting to see kind of how the how the municipal municipal world, right, local governments that are dealing with adaptation uh, and local industries approach it in this new era. Wow, what an amazing sort of pivot because my next episode after Michael Mann, I just went to a conference called Companies versus Climate Change and it had a lot of local government people there and a lot of private businesses and universally they were saying, you know what, no matter what happens during this administration, businesses are are ready to to step it up and so we'll see, but it was encouraging to kind of hear that message. Right. And I we talked about that a little bit last time, I think. There's Plenty of investment already and dedication and good reasons, good market reasons for companies to keep uh, mitigating and adapting to climate change, despite what the uh, U.S. president happens to think. So one way or the other, uh, there's going to be forward movement. Great. Great insight. All right. Thanks, Tim. I hope you have a fantastic day. You too, Doug. Enjoy the cupcake. (laughs) I will. All right, everybody. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. That is a wrap. Thanks again to Dr. Michael Mann. You are a hero of mine, and that was a fantastic conversation. I hope everyone learns a ton from that conversation. I'll be sharing that far and wide. I 
I hope to have Michael Mann back on the podcast. I think in three months or six months, we'll see what has happened with the new administration. And I think it'll be very timely to get him back on and, and talk about these issues. But again, it was a, just a thrill, Mike, to have you on. You, you're a brilliant man and you've been such a leader on climate change. So thanks for all that you do. Also, thanks to Tim Watkins for the Adaptation Wine Power Hour. Always enjoy talking to Tim. And a little housekeeping. Don't forget, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. There's that little purple eye at it. If you look on your smartphone, you click it on and you search for America Daps, hit subscribe. And that way you don't have to worry about looking for this each week. I publish generally Monday nights, and that can be waiting for you every week. And I have upcoming guests, World Wildlife Fund. I talk about a conference that I visited down in Fort Lauderdale, Companies versus Climate Change. I do a bunch of micro podcasts with a lot of really interesting people there. And don't forget to visit the website, americadaps.org. It's a way of learning a bit more about me if you're interested. And there you can actually listen to the podcast I have streaming from the website. And there's other things on the website, and I have my email address, americadaps at gmail.com. If you have questions about Michael Mann um, that you want to ask, please go through me. Uh, if it's something urgent, I, I, I can probably get that to, to Mike, but just contact me if you have any questions, especially the media. And um, if you had suggestions for guests, I'm always getting recommendations from colleagues and just random people, but I do love to hear from the random listener about a potential guest on the podcast. That's That makes things very interesting. So please feel free to contact me. I also have a Facebook page and a Facebook group. The Facebook page, I you know just publish things related to the podcast, but the group, we get a little bit more personal. Uh, I have conversations with listeners and it's really interesting, which reminds me, I had a little bit of a contest. I put out a small clue about who the, the guest was going to be on this episode. And it was actually a pretty easy clue, but I want to acknowledge Suzanne Pardue and she's with the Ontario Adaptation Research Center. And I'm sure, Suzanne, I got that wrong. You guys need a shorter name, but they're up in Ontario doing some amazing adaptation work. And Suzanne, correct guess. I had a picture of the Madhouse Effect, Michael Mann's book. And I said, hey, guess who my next guest is? And Suzanne was the first one to answer. And that's what I kind of do on the group. And so if you're interested, please just search on Facebook, America Daps Climate Change Group, and you can you can join that. And we have these sort of more kind of informal discussions. So think about that. And I'm also on Twitter at USA Adapts. Please tweet me. If you have great stories and ideas, I'll retweet them or I'll post them on the Facebook page. And on that note, thanks again for being listeners. Um, it's, it's always fun to talk to you and it's always fun to hear from you. So let's keep our heads up as, you know, we pivot into the new year and lots to really focus on, on climate change, some big challenges ahead. And I just I want you to think of America Daps as a platform to have those conversations. And typically we have a very positive, uh, outlook on things, but you know, it is a very urgent and sobering issue. And so let's all keep collaborating together to try to address these issues. All right. Thanks. 